Well, I'll begin this morning with a story about a man named Roger. We'll call him Roger. So Roger's a typical boy growing up in a suburb of Raleigh. He got decent grades, especially good in math. And so in college, he thinks, I'll, I guess I'll do that. I'll pursue math. And then finally, he narrows it down to accounting and eventually goes on to get an MBA. So he lands a good job, it's a growing company. You know, he's in his 20s, the company's doing well, he's doing well. But then he figured out at some point a way that the company could alter their profit and loss column to look better. Their profits had started to slip and actually they were losing money. But he figured out a way that they could look profitable in the eyes of their shareholders and the world around them. And so for several years, the shareholders are happy, the executives are happy, but eventually someone figured out the lie. And so they post all over social media, the fraud that's taking place at this company. And that got the attention of the police. So the police get involved, the investigators get involved, and sure enough, the fraud gets discovered. And so Roger ends up going to jail 10 years for a crime he did commit. No false accusation here. He totally committed the crime, busted, goes to jail. But in jail, there's a Bible study. So he begins to learn about the forgiveness that's available in Christ. So Praise God, he gets saved. So he puts his faith in Christ, his heart, his soul, everything's different now. He's still in jail, but he's a different person. Life totally changed. He does his 10 years, gets out of jail. He's in his 30s now, late 30s now, but he's a convicted felon. So he's looking for jobs as a convicted felon who did 10 years in prison. And companies care about that kind of thing. And so he finds himself unable to get a job anywhere. No company was interested. And so what, he comes, what Roger comes to realize is that God had forgiven him his, his sins. He's a forgiven man. He lives and breathes hopes as a forgiven man. And in some ways, he's satisfied the demand of the government. They're satisfied. He did his 10 years, which is what they wanted. But the consequences, the consequences of his sin are everywhere around him. His whole life is just covered, immersed in the consequences of his sin. So how would you try and help Roger? Well, in many ways, that's the situation we're reading about in Nehemiah 9. This, if you ever meet a guy like Roger, you might consider doing a Bible study in Nehemiah 9. This this has much to say to him. And what we're going to find as well is that we're all Roger. We all have those consequences that we live with. We're forgiven, perhaps. But even if we are forgiven, sometimes the consequences live on. And so we'll see that Nehemiah has much to say to us. Now, this, is, uh, this series is God's Construction Project. So this series in Ezra and Nehemiah, and, and as we've said, that's really a two-part of a one-part uh, of a single book. It's uh, book one and two, you know, but it's bound together, Ezra and Nehemiah. So it wasn't until much later in church history that they were separated into two books. So this Ezra and Nehemiah story is about God building something, God doing something amazing. So he leads his people through the Persian king Cyrus to rebuild the temple. Amazing moment. And then through the Persian king Artaxerxes, uh, through the leadership of Nehemiah and others, they rebuild the walls. So the walls around the city of Jerusalem are rebuilt. So if you're going to be an ancient city, you need walls, or else you're in a very precarious situation. But then there's this other building aspect that has to happen, rebuilding the people. The people also need to be rebuilt. They were Persian captives uh, for decades and decades and decades and decades and decades. Babylonian captives for decades and decades and decades. And now they're back, and so they need to rediscover who they are. And so this rebuilding of the people's a big deal. 
And so in some ways, that's what we're trying to take away is rebuilding, uh, this rebuilding project mirrors us, rebuilding the church. And as we know, the church is not a building, it's not a place. The church is a people. We are the church. If all of us meet outside in the backyard, then the church is in the backyard. This is just a hollow shell. This is just a building. The church is actually in the backyard. Wherever we gather, that's where the church is. And wherever churches gather, that's where the church is. So this is just a few weeks after the completion of the walls. So chapter 6, verse 15, is when, is when the walls are completed. Happy moment. People are celebrating. They're not dedicated yet. That's coming. Uh, but the walls are complete. And that was in the sixth month, 25th day. Now we're into the seventh month, 24th day. So it's just a few weeks later. So all that great stuff that Brad told us about in Nehemiah 8, all that great revival and everything happens in just a, a few weeks in the seventh month. Then there's a, there's a day off, we don't know what they did, and then we come back on the 24th day of the seventh month, and that's what happens in Nehemiah 9. And if you recall from Brad's sermon on Nehemiah 8, there was that moment when the people are, are the, the, the law is being read and the people are weeping out of conviction. They're convicted about their sin and they just begin to weep. And suddenly... Ezra and Nehemiah and others begin to cry out, no, stop. This isn't a time of weeping. This is a time of celebration and joy. Rejoice. But that conviction remains. And so in some ways, they, they, they had some business to do with God in terms of confessing sin and owning their sin and praying for God's help. And so they come back on the 24th day, and that's what we have here. Now it's time to deal with our sin. And so there's fasting, there's sackcloth, they put dirt on their heads as, as, just as a sign of, of being lowed, uh, being humiliated by their sins and being low before the Lord. And they confess their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Now, there's a, there's a time when that's really inappropriate to do that, to confess the iniquity of your fathers. But then there's a time just to, just to know that our sins are, there's a, there's a generational component to them. You know, those people in the past are, are us. We are them and they are us. And so they confess their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. But first is this reading of the book of the law for three hours. And then for another three hours, there's confession and worship. So what we get here in chapter 9, uh, we could read that through in, in just a couple minutes. So we just know that this, is, this was said, but also this is also just a reflection, a representation of what was said for hours as they own their sin. And what's going to come next, uh, Mike Knoll is going to preach on this next week, is a covenant renewal. So they're going to, they're going to in some ways, it's like, a, 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 like in, a, in, a, in a marriage sometimes, you just feel the need to renew our vows. You know, we're not more married than we were the day before you renew your vows, but it's sort of just a statement. We want to make a statement that we are kind of recommitting, rededicating ourselves. And then, so that's what that covenant renewal is. So Mike's going to hit that next week. So our topic this morning is this. Our sins are great but God's mercies are greater. Our sins are great, but God's mercies are greater. So point one is going to be our great God, point two, his great mercies, and then point three, our great distress. Our great God, his great mercies, our great distress. So Father, we come before you now as those in need of mercy. We pray that you would extend your mercy to us individually, as families, and as a church, and even as a country, Lord. Lord, we know that every day we accumulate reasons why you could pour out your wrath upon us, and we pray that you wouldn't. We pray that you would be merciful. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, point one, our great God. So we'll 
go over the verses that Claire read to us. So if you look at verse 5, you have these Levites listed. And these are the guys who kind of lead this, this uh, prayer of confession. So the first they address the people. So, you know, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. So it's really just a statement that our God is worthy of not just Sunday morning worship, not just Sunday afternoon worship, not just all day on Sunday, but from everlasting to everlasting, he is worthy to be worshiped. Praise him now, but praise him now at, almost as a, as a statement that he is worthy of all of the worship of eternity past into eternity future. So that's the first thing they do is address the people. <clears throat> and then they lift their eyes up to the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name, which is, a, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. It's an interesting way to say that. Blessed be your name, which is exalted above all blessing. Blessed be your name, which is, above, which is exalted above all blessing. We praise your name, which is, which is exalted above all praise. In other words, we're going we're gonna to speak blessing. God is blessed. May he, be, may he be praised and exalted by all people. And yet, we don't do this pretending that we can kind of encapsulate his full glory. He always transcends, surpasses infinitely our ability to express his glory and greatness. He is blessed. He is worthy of praise. But human beings can never come up with all the words and all the, all the ideas that, that can fittingly praise him and capture that praise. It's always beyond us. But we, for the rest of eternity, actually, we're going to keep trying. We're going to write more new songs. We're going to keep trying. What about this new song? Are we finished yet? No, we're not, not, we haven't even begun. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And then they turn to this doxology. Great, rich language in verse 6 there. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the, ha- the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. So the, this point is called our great God. So all of these, all of these lines here from uh, verse 5 to verse 15 are just endless, uh, or not endless because it's just verse 5 to verse 15, but significant, <laughs> it's a significant passage trying to, trying to put their minds around the greatness of God. And we'll see how that connects to our sin in just a second. So he is great. So verse 6, you are the Lord, you are Yahweh, you alone And then they turn to God as creator, which sets them apart from all that pantheon of gods they've been hearing about from the Babylonians and Persians for as long as they can remember. So our God, the God, is the one who made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. In other words, everything. Everything is made by our God. So we look around and we don't see this as the the long result of a crazy coincidence of natural causes. Now we look around and we say, this is his handiwork. And in some ways, one of the indicators of that is when we look around, you take a long walk in the mountains on vacation or something, you realize that what you see is not just complex, it's beautiful. No human being made that. No natural cause created that. But then it goes on, it says you preserve all of them. So he didn't just, you know, like a Pinewood Derby, you know, you, you put your car on the track and let it go and it goes to the bottom. God didn't just set this creation in motion and then kick back and say, wow, that's cool. Let me just 
get some popcorn and watch this for a trillion years and see what happens. No, he preserves all of them. He's actively engaged with his creation. This is his providence. As Jesus tells us, not a sparrow, single bird, with a very short lifespan relative to the universe, not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of the Father. He preserves all of them. And then it says, the host of heaven worships you. And whether that means stars, you know, the the physical heavens, or whether it's the spiritual heavens, it's angels, the host of heaven, we don't know. And the truth is, it's both. Obviously, the angels speak things. The creation doesn't speak, but but yet it does. It's declaring and proclaiming uh, the glory of God, as you know from Psalm 19. It, It declares that in a silent kind of way. We look at it, and it just cries out, God made this, and therefore he is glorious. So the host of heaven worships you. <clears throat> and then he begins to narrow the focus. So that's, that's true of all. Uh, all human beings share in that heritage of the created universe. But then he focuses on Israel in a unique, special way. And so he focuses on Abraham in 7 and 8. And I'm, I say he, but actually it's, it's a group of Levites who are leading this prayer somehow. We don't know wh- who exactly spoke which verses or anything like that. Uh, but when I say he, I'm, re- I'm just referring to the author. So he focuses on Abraham's covenant. So he's first called Abram, which means exalted father. And then he's called father of, an, of a multitude, Abraham. His name has changed. So his name has changed as, a, as, a, as God declaring that it will happen you will be the father of a multitude. I mean, he had one promised son, Isaac. So that to hear that you're going to be the father of a multitude, that, take, that takes faith. And so when Abraham believed God, it took faith. He didn't look around and say, there's a million Israelites. You know, after the Exodus, or during the Exodus, there's a million Israelites or so. But at one point, it was just, it was just Abraham and his son, Isaac. That was, that was the future multitude. So it took faith to believe that, and yet Abraham believed that. And then there's, then there's this focus on the land, the nations that will be conquered through, uh, the nations that will be given to Abraham as people. And so in Genesis 15, uh, God actually lists out 10 nations that will be conquered uh, by Abraham's future descendants, uh, future offspring. Six of those are listed in this, in this passage here. All of them were conquered. That's the land of Canaan. So appropriately, because these people are, um, they, they understand that the nation of Israel is the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. So the, the nation, that, you know, Jerusalem is in the center of the nation of Israel, such as it was. And so they understand that the fact that they are there in that place is because God kept his promise. You have kept your promise for you are righteous. That's Nehemiah 9.8. And then he goes to the Exodus. So he's just marching through these, his, these massively important historical uh, events in the, in the history of Israel. And they all are showing us something, as we'll see in a second. So he gets to the Exodus. So it begins at the Red Sea and the signs and wonders uh, that God did against Pharaoh and his servants. And then there's the, the, there's the pillar of cloud by day to guide them uh, through the wilderness and the pillar of fire by night to guide them. So God's guidance was always with them uh, through those 40 years of wandering. And then there's a major focus on the law. So look at verses 13 and 14. So now we're at Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19 through 24 or so. So you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. So the law is a revelation of God because it's God speaking from heaven. 
It's not just a, uh, a thing that Moses came up with. Hey, wouldn't it be cool if we had this book of laws? We should probably include laws about how to treat God and our neighbor and slaves and, uh, and feasts and festivals during the year. We'll do all this kind of stuff because you know, we're a nation now. We have to look like a nation. I mean, Moses did write it, get it from God. But ultimately, it's from God. He spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. Right rules, true laws, good statutes and commandments. So obviously an emphasis here on the commands of God, the commandments of God. And we'll see why in just a second. But it's good to see the adjectives that are there. Right rules. Righteous. Holy rules. They are true laws, trustworthy laws, true in accordance with all truth. And they are good statutes and commandments. So they are tr- they're right, they are true, and they are good commandments. We don't tend to think of commandments in that light, do we? We tend to be maybe a little offended by commandments if someone's trying to tell us what to do, or maybe just resentful somehow. But what we learn here is, no, these are right, true, and good commandments that God has given In other words, you will be blessed to the extent that you embrace God's commandments. You will be cursed to the extent that you reject God's commandments because they are right, true, and good. And then there's a focus on bread from heaven and water from the rock. After all, there's there's a, a million plus people that leave Egypt and are making their way to Canaan. There's nothing there. You know, you don't just pull over at Costco and say, I need a lot of food right now. Uh, I have a lot of friends I need to buy for. So God provides for them. Manna from heaven and water from a rock. So in other words, all these things, you put them all together and what you recognize is our God is great. He is a great God. And he's good. He's a great and he's a good God. And what, what, why here? Why now? What, what purpose does it have in this chapter, which is, which is confessing sins? And I think what, what is being communicated to us is we need to see the sinfulness of sin. We need to see the sinfulness of sin. When you bask in the greatness of God and the goodness of God, the blessings of God, well, then the sinfulness of your sin begins to become clearer. For instance, our sin, your sin, is so sinful because it's sin against the true and living and awesome God. Later in the the chapter, God is described as awesome, fear-provoking, fear-inspiring God. So sin, part of what makes sin so sinful is it's a sin against God. If you go back to our man Roger at the the start of the sermon, you know, he he might really resent the fact that these, you know, regulators who waltz in and think they have all this power and authority and think they're so great can accuse him and, and throw him into jail. He might really resent that fact. Who do they think they are? They're just like me. They're probably just as corrupt as I am. But in the end, his sin wasn't just a sin against random government regulators. His sin was against God. And that's what makes his sin so very sinful, worth a lot more than 10 years in prison. So our sins are sinful because they are sins against the holy, righteous, true, and living God. And then second, our sins are so sinful because they're sins against a God who has been so good to us. And if you're not a believer, God has still been good to you. 
you are here and you are surrounded by blessings in your life. And you might never have put God's name on those blessings, but he is the author of those blessings in your life. But for Christians especially, God has been so very good to us. We've, 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 we've entered into the, the choosing, the election of Abraham. We've entered into the redemption of the Exodus through the, our redemption in Jesus Christ. He's chosen us. He's redeemed us. He's provided for us. Just like manna in the wilderness, he's provided for us. God has been so good to us. You know, on crime shows, when you watch, you know, when it turns out that the guy who got killed, uh, maybe illegally, uh, the guy who got killed was actually a monster, you actually don't feel bad, do you? You feel a little bit of joy that he deserved it. That guy that got whacked, I'm glad he did. It's true that maybe that woman has to go to jail for killing him, but in some ways she's a hero, you know, in that, in that crime show, because the guy was a monster. But our sin against God is not like that. He is good. He has blessed us. Any sin we commit against God is a sin against a God who has been untiring and is blessing us. That's, what, that's another reason our sin is so sinful. And these verses really make that clear. And then third, our sin is so sinful because it's a violation of the clear commandments of the living God. You know, at times, you get punished for breaking a rule that you just didn't even know existed. You know, maybe, maybe it's some random traffic law, you get pulled over and you, you just didn't know that was a law. Uh, almost, that's almost never the case, but it does happen very occasionally. <laughs> but there are times, you know, in business or work or sometimes with your parents. I, I just didn't know that was a law. And sometimes that's actually true, the child didn't know. Most of the time they did know, they did it anyway. But sometimes it is true. I just didn't know that was a, a thing we weren't supposed to do. Because it it's not clear or whatever. But with God's law, it's not like that. I mean, the two uh, primary and secondary sources of God's law for us, knowing what God's law is, that is, first primary source would be the Bible. The Bible is very clear on what God asks of us. I mean, sometimes there's passages that take, that take some study to unravel, uh, unpack, but it is clear. You shall have no other gods before me. Yeah, but what are you really saying? I don't understand. You shall have no other gods before me. That's what I'm saying. You shall not murder. Yeah, but what do you really mean? It's confusing. There's so many technicalities. Murder, blah, blah, blah. You shall not murder. And there are many places, many, many, many places where it's very clear. It's very clear what the word says. So we can't, we can't look at this and say, yeah, but you never told me. He has told you. And then the secondary source of knowing what God's will is, what God's law is, there are other sources, but this is an important secondary source, and that's our own conscience. There's something you're doing or about to do or have done, and you feel bad about it, and it's appropriate. The thing with your conscience is that you can have false guilt, and that gets complicated. You actually feel bad for something that isn't, isn't wrong. You just feel bad about it. And sometimes that's where you need to speak to your conscience and say, conscience, shut up. God's word is clear, and God's word is clear that this was not a sin. I, I will not feel bad about it. You know, that's the devil coming into your life as the false accuser. But so often our consciences are, they're right. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the flashing red, red light on the dashboard that says, you're doing something wrong. You need to stop. That's God revealing his will, his moral will to you. So sin is so sinful because it's a violation of the clear commandments of the living God. So all that, really makes it clear that our sins are great. 
Our sins are great. We don't help ourselves if we try to talk ourselves out of the seriousness and the evil and the, the, just the bigness of our sins. You know, at that point, you're not helping yourself, you're not helping other people if you try to minimize a sin. Sin really is a great problem. However, his mercies are greater. His mercies are greater. And so in the second section, we enter into his great mercies. And there's actually a pattern in this chapter where you get this, some, some uh, a demonstration of God's goodness and then Israel's sinful response and then a clear statement of God's great mercies. Sometimes there's God's discipline before the great mercies, but it's God's goodness and then Israel's sinful response and then great mercies. So we pick up at verse 16 now. And I'll read verse 16 through 21. So remember, where do we leave them off? We left, we left them off with, in the wilderness, being provided for by the Lord. God has been very good to them. God, the creator of all things, who's worthy of the worship of the heavenly hosts. That God. So then at verse 16, but, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. So that's a golden calf reference. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of, out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. So how did Israel, act, how did Israel react to this profound display of God's goodness and greatness. It's right there in verse 16 and 17. They stiffened their necks. They acted presumptuously and they did not obey your commandments. And so then he points to the golden calf. You know, so after uh, they're, they're, they're brought from Egypt to Mount Sinai, Moses is up on the mountain with the Lord. They're, they don't know what's up with this guy. And so they build a golden calf and begin to bow down and worship it. So it's not, it's not that they got lost in kind of the details and the, and the subtleties of the Mosaic law, the fine print that it takes a while to get to. Now, these are the first two commandments, which they had already received. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to it. So at the very least, they're breaking the second commandment. They're probably breaking the first two commandments. And at that point, they had, they had, they had really forfeited their rights to be a people and actually to continue to live. They had forfeited their right to that. And of course, you know, individually they had before that. But as a nation, they had really forfeited their right. So God would have been just to do what he did with Noah. Wipe out humanity, start over with Noah. Or Moses, or sorry, or Abraham. Lots of nations around, we're going to start with Abraham, this one guy. Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans. So maybe, maybe God could do some kind of new beginning with Moses. Well, he didn't. He chose to be merciful. And at the golden calf, God spoke one of the great Old Testament gospel presentations. So in chapter 34, 6, and 7, we'll read the paraphrase here in verse 17. But this comes from Exodus 34, 6, and 7. So the golden calf is the context where God speaks it. And now, now the rest of uh, the history of Israel paraphrases it time and, time and again. 
And so these, these Levite, Levites say it this way, you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Hopefully that gracious and merciful, slow to anger and, sted, and uh, abounding in steadfast love feels familiar. It's used a lot of times in the Old Testament. In other words, what these, what these uh, men are doing is they're pointing to the character of God. The great mercies he has done are because he is merciful. So you are a God ready to forgive, gracious, and merciful. So they're not looking at his works as they're somehow separate from him, but they're understanding that his works of mercy, his great mercies, are because he is merciful. So that part of their confidence to cry out to the Lord is because of who God is. He isn't just the all-powerful creator who made everything and now sustains everything. He's also gracious and merciful, ready to forgive, ready to forgive. And once you, know, once you get familiar with the pages of the Bible, you recognize that God being ready, ready to forgive he means he's ready to forgive anything. I mean, the heroes of the Bible have done horrible things. Some of those you can't even talk about on a Sunday morning. Those are the good guys, much less the bad guys in the Bible. But mercy, mercy is what, the, what they point to, the character of God being merciful. And six times in this chapter, in this section here actually, six times, The mercies of God or God being merciful is highlighted. I uh, looked up this character attribute of of God's mercy uh, uh, early in the 20th century, a guy named Louis Burkhoff. So this this is how he defines the mercy of God. So the mercy of God. Another important aspect of the goodness and love of God is his mercy or tender compassion. The Hebrew word most generally used for this is chesed. There is another word, however, which expresses a deep and tender compassion, namely the word raham, which is beautifully rendered by tender mercy in our English Bible. The Septuagint and the New Testament employ the Greek word eleos to designate the mercy of God. It is the grace of God that contemplates, if the grace of God contemplates a man as guilty before God and therefore in need of forgiveness, The mercy of God contemplates him as one who is bearing the consequences of sin, who is in a pitiable condition and who therefore needs divine help. It may be defined as the goodness or love of God shown to those who are in misery or distress, irrespective of their deserts. In other words, irrespective of what they deserve. In his mercy, God reveals himself as a compassionate God who pities those who are in misery and is ever ready to relieve their distress. And the reason that's helpful for us, especially in connection with Nehemiah 9, is that, well, for one, that word raham that he mentioned is the word used in Nehemiah 9. So the six times you see mercy used, it's that Hebrew word, raham. And then the notion that part of the, part of the aspect of mercy is that you're bearing the consequences of sin, well, that's what these people are doing. So they're, they're praying to God to have mercy on them because they are experiencing the consequences of sin all around them. God has done wonderful things in helping them to rebuild the temple, helping them to rebuild the, they've rebuilt the walls of the city, and yet, and where it's going to go at the, at the end of the chapter is this statement that we are slaves. We are slaves. We're slaves to a Persian king, in other words. So th- 
whatever restoration is happening in the city, it's, it's happening in, uh, with the, the double awareness that we are also slaves. And because we are slaves, we are inheriting, we are, we are living in the consequences of our sins. So that's why mercy is appropriate to, to think about in a chapter like Nehemiah 9. They're in a pitiable condition because of the consequences of sin. And the thing with consequences of sin is it, it could be your sin specifically. You know, you're, 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 you're the Roger character. You, you did cheat. You did, you did fraud. You committed fraud. You went to jail and now you're receiving consequences for it. So that's you know, direct consequences, you might say. But some of us are, are not experiencing uh, direct consequences. It's just consequences of sin that isn't ours. It's someone else's sin. And yet the consequences of that sin remain with us to this day. And it could be your parents and how they treated you. That's possible. Or it could be Adam. When Adam fell in the garden, it didn't just affect him and his wife. Obviously it did. It affected all of us. This creation suddenly became a fallen creation. Sickness is because of Adam's sin. I mean, sometimes, very occasionally, and please hear that, very occasionally. It happens very occasionally that sometimes sickness actually is God's discipline in your life. Most of the time, the vast majority of the time, however, it's not. You got sick because you're in a fallen world. And if you're in a fallen world, you're going to get sick. That's just the way it works. If you're surrounded by people who have the flu, you're just going to get the flu. And that's not because you sinned. It's because you're in a fallen world and everyone around you has the flu. So consequences of sin are very real. And then he speaks to those, or or then uh, Louis Burkhoff talked about God pitying those who are in misery and ever ready to relieve their distress. And that seemed appropriate because the the last uh, four words of our our passage, 937, five words, sorry. We are in great distress. We are in great distress. We're slaves of Artaxerxes. We are in great distress. We're a people surrounded by enemies. We're not an independent nation like we should be as God's people. We are in great distress. And that's why they cry out for mercy. And the other thing they do in this prayer, which is, which is really important you don't want to miss, is that when they talk about great mercies, they're very specific. So that when they rehearse the mercies of the past, they rehearse them. They talk about them in detail. So if you pick it up at verse 18. So when they, when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies, and then he begins to list all the great mercies, at least categories of mercies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. They deserved it, but God did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day. That blessing that was there before remained after the golden calf. Nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. God's spoken revelation did not stop after they committed the blasphemy at the golden calf. All, those, all the prophets that we read about are written after the golden calf. The histories that we read about, the book of Psalms, Proverbs, all that is after the golden calf. So God did not stop speaking to them, instructing them by his good Holy Spirit. He did not withhold his manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years, 
He just kept providing day after day after day after day, manna from heaven. And that's a positive thing. Sometimes we, we're telling people about a really good thing that happened, and we say, it was like manna from heaven, because that was a good thing. And God blessed them day after day after day after day for 40 years until they were in the promised land and did not need that manna miracle again, because they were in the promised land. They could plant fields and harvest crops. 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Those are great mercies. God's provision, miraculous provision continued. He did not stop being good to them just because they had sinned. So this cycle of God, God's goodness, the, the sinful response, God's, uh, God's uh, uh, mercies, and sometimes discipline and then mercies, it continues. And so we'll pick up the next cycle of that in verse 22. So they're in the wilderness now. And once we get to verse 22, they're no longer in the wilderness. Now suddenly we're in the book of, of Joshua. So the conquest. You gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. Well, actually, that's right before the book of Joshua. But anyway, we're getting to the conquest. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land. They took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. So another, obviously, picture of God's goodness. Therefore you gave them in, sorry, nevertheless, verse 26, nevertheless they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back, and now this new element, and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. He did not turn them away. Their sins deserved it. He did not turn them away. So when they cried out, he responded by pouring out his mercies. He brought saviors, those human saviors, men who would be raised up at different times, or Deborah, uh, who would be raised up at a, at a time for uh, bringing deliverance to the people. And don't miss that they turned back. So they're, they're, they're sinning and receiving the consequences of those sins, and then they turn back to the Lord. And once they turn back to the Lord and cry out to him, well, then he's pouring out his great mercies. And it continues, so we take it from 29 to 31 now. Another cycle of this goodness, sin, mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirits through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. So Assyria and Babylon. So the captivities, the, the major historical captivities. Assyria, the northern captivity, and Babylon, the captivity of the tribe of Judah. 
Therefore you gave them into the hand of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Nevertheless, the remnant remained. Nevertheless, there was a people that still uh, believed in the Lord and trusted in him. There was a remnant that came back from Babylon uh, to Jerusalem. For you are a gracious and merciful God. So what does this, this passage here describe for us? What does it tell us? The point two. I think it shows us how to ask for mercy, how to pray for God's mercy. Two really important things that are given here. One is you pray his character back to him. You know, twice, very powerful, emphatic statements. You are a gracious and merciful God. You are a gracious and merciful God. Verse 17 and then verse uh, uh, 31 there. Well, God knows he's a gracious God. You're not teaching him something. You're not even reminding him of something. But all throughout the Bible, we get that. People praying God's character back to God. And it's really implied there is, God, you have revealed that you're gracious and merciful. I know that you're gracious and merciful. Therefore, God, be gracious and merciful to me. You are this, therefore, be this for me right now. That's how those prayers work. You are merciful, be merciful to me right now. You are gracious, be gracious to me right now. That's how that works. So when you're praying for mercy in your situation, pray his character back to him. Lord, you are this, therefore I'm asking you, I'm crying out to you to be this. You know, we do that sometimes in our prayers for healing. You know, Lord, you are all-powerful. Lord, you have promised to answer prayer. Therefore, we're praying for healing right now. So it's just praying his character back to him. And then they're also praying his mercies in the past back to him. The Bible is filled with, with records of mercy, records of God's mercy to God's people. And so at times it's very appropriate. Lord, you are the one who at the Red Sea delivered your people, therefore deliver me now. Lord, you are the one who showed mercy you know, to Israel when they didn't deserve it. Therefore, show mercy to me now when I don't deserve it. So let this book you know, be a feeder for your prayers, give you examples of what God is like in the past to inspire your prayers for the present. So pray his character back to him and then pray his mercies in the past back to him. So that's point two. Point three is much shorter. Our sins are great, but his mercies are greater. So now we get to our great distress. And in some ways, this lays out the consequences. You know, earlier we talked about Roger and his consequences. You know, he was forgiven by God, government satisfied, and yet he lives with the consequences of his past sins. And so in verse 32 to 7, we get that same idea. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom. And amid your great goodness, 
that you gave them. And in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. There, behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Consequences of sin. They're forgiven. These are happy days of revival, and yet consequences of sin. So our sins are great, but God's mercies are greater. So in this passage, you see, you see how, how the sinfulness of our sin works. You know, despite his, his goodness and greatness, we sin. And these sins are great. As I said, we don't want to minimize our sins. They are great. And yet, his mercies are greater. The last word in this, in this chapter, as it were, is not our sins. The last word is God's mercies. So what do we do with this chapter? Three things. One, if you ever encounter a guy like Roger, please lead him in a Bible study of Nehemiah 9. He needs to hear it. He needs to identify the true sinfulness of his sin. That's true. But he also needs to hear what God's mercy is like. Help him to see that mercy. That's the first thing. The second thing, you know, maybe you're catching the, the, the pattern of Ezra and Nehemiah, but this happens several times, and it's not accidental. Several times there's this significant reading of God's law, God's word, and then major things happen. Ezra, Ezra 7, um, Ezra 8, significant reading of God's law, and then repentance of sin in chapters 9 and 10. Chapter 8 of Nehemiah, significant reading of God's law, and then covenant renewal, restoration of God's people in a profoundly new way. And so maybe in that, there, there is some, I don't want to call it recipe because that makes it sound overly formulaic, but, but there is some kind of help for us. If you need personal revival, just think about that. Immerse yourself in God's word. If you need a true personal revival, immerse yourself in God's word. Or for a country, let the word of God go forth in the United States of America so that there would be massive revival that could break out in our country. And please don't think that can't happen. God's word going forth at a national level can happen. So please don't, don't lose hope that that can happen. I'm not saying it will. I'm just saying it can. It has in the past. It can in the future. So that's the second thing. See here, a kind of a guide for a personal and national revival. And then third, let this chapter remind you of what you need. You need to be born again. So Jesus, you know, future centuries from after this passage takes place, Jesus is talking to a Pharisee named Nicodemus, and he says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that's, that's vividly uh, a display for us in this chapter. It's not enough to have a great heritage. It's not enough to have behind you generations of people who have been following the Lord and, and worshiping God in church. It's not enough. It's not enough to have a significant personal past where you've experienced signs and wonders in all these wonderful, greats and diverse ways. It's not enough to have the Bible read to you and preached to you and taught to you, maybe even from birth. 
It's not enough to have God's messengers, you know, your parents or friends or, or leaders in the church or pastors. It's not enough to, to have God's messengers proclaiming his promises and warnings to you. You need to be born again. And so a few verses after that, that comment to Nicodemus, Jesus, uh, uh, we're told how to be uh, changed, how to be saved. And maybe you've heard this verse before. This is kind of, you know, if you think of Exodus 34, 6 and 7 in the Old Testament, well, this is the same kind of verse in the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In other words, mercy is being extended to you. Believe in Jesus and receive it. The offer of eternal mercy, not temporary you know, for today or for a specific situation or crisis mercy, but eternal mercy is being held out to you. Believe in Jesus and receive it. Let's pray. Father, we, we identify so much with the, uh, the consequences of sin, whether it's our sin or the sins of others. Lord, we know that they're real. And so we do pray, Lord, that you, you would help us where it's appropriate for those who are in Christ. Lord, we pray that we would, we would walk in the good of the forgiveness that is ours. Lord, it's very possible that there really is nothing more for us to do in terms of repenting or confessing. We just need to understand our forgiveness in you and live in the good of it. And so for, for those people in this room, I pray that they would just get a fresh ability to walk in the good of forgiven sin. Whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, will not perish, but have eternal life. And implied in that is a forgiveness, an eternal, a present and future, unwavering forgiveness of sins. And Lord, for those of us where it's not, it's not, it's, it's not a, it's a, it's a, it's a consequence of sin that we're living with and that seems to plague us in so many ways. Lord, if that's us, then, Lord, we ask you for mercy, fresh mercy, new mercy. Your word says that your mercies are new every morning. And so, Lord, we pray for new mercies, new faith and new hope, new confidence in you. Yes, that kind of mercy, but also just new mercies, new provision, new help, new relief from maybe some of those consequences of sin. And if the consequence is, uh, is like an illness, it's the consequence of uh, the sin of Adam, Lord, then we pray for mercy. We pray for healing mercy, first of all, but we also pray for sustaining mercy if your will is for us not to be healed. Help us to see, Lord, that you are our great and good God. Give us faith, faith for today's struggles because there is today's mercy to go along with it. We pray in Jesus' name.